A special welcome to our online audience. We know you're out there and we want to welcome you. We want to welcome our Westside campus, our Santa Fe campus, as well as those watching on various media platforms. We consider you a part of our fellowship. We want to know how we can pray for you, how we can serve you. You're going to love our special guest tonight. Am I right? Yeah. Eric has been here before. Uh, Eric Metaxas uh, graduated from Yale. Uh, we won't hold that against him. Um, he uh, is a New York Times best-selling author. He has authored 13 books as well as um, 30 children's books. Uh, he is the host of the Eric Metaxas Show, which airs in hundreds of cities around the country. What's interesting, too, a few years back, he was the keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast. I remember that breakfast when he gave his Bonhoeffer book to President Obama at the time. It was a great moment. Um, he uh, is, appears on various news broadcasts and has written articles. One, one thing to make a note of, he wrote an article uh, for the Wall Street Journal uh, some time back. It was about science and God, and it was, has been, the most popular piece in the history of the Wall Street Journal. So um, he's making great inroads. And besides that, Eric Metaxas is the king of pocket squares. Whenever you see him, he's wearing a blazer with a cool pocket square, and he does not disappoint tonight. You're really going to like his pocket square. More, more than that, you're going to love this book he wrote. And uh, it's a bold book title, Is Atheism Dead? And you're going to discover what the answer is. It's a pretty astonishing answer. What makes it good for us, this fellowship, Calvary Albuquerque, is you're in it. And uh, you're, it's, it's a part of the story. So uh, I'm going to let uh, Eric talk about that. Would you please give a huge New Mexico welcome to our friend, Eric Metaxas. This is too much. Now you stop that. Now you cut that out. You cut that out. Please sit down. Not so fast. Not so fast. What? It is such a blessing to be here. I'm not going to be able to get through this sermon. I just want to joke around. This is such a blessing to be here. They said, now this is our capture uh, event. This is our capture sermon. So make sure you look at the online camera because there are people watching online. And remember, no cursing, don't, no smoking. And I was like, what kind of a legalistic, what? Like I can't have a cigarette to relax during my sermon? What's that all about? That's legalism, brother. Um, no, I, I'm very blessed to be here. Uh, and for those of you who are watching online, why aren't you in church? You think you're better? Wait, no, 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 no. Why? I want to know. I can't hear you, so forget it. But um, I know why you're not here, because there's a, there's a stench in this room, am I right? Oh, my gosh. This is terrible. No, I love being here so much. Every time I come here... I get silly because I get very, very blessed. I become uh, friends uh, with Skip. I don't care for his wife, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't like her. I don't like Lenya. Um, she's not even here tonight. That's not right. What pastor's wife does that? She just like, she's just a... No, I, I like them so much that I make fun of them publicly. That's my love language. If you know, you know, if you want to know if I like you, I make fun of you publicly. I am hugely blessed to be here. It's like 12 degrees in New York City where I'm from. And today my goal was to get a sunburn. 
And uh, I, I, I think I accomplished that. It was really, it's so sweet uh, to be here. This is an amazing place. It's not a joke that the book that I wrote, Is Atheism Dead, would n came um, into existence literally because of this church and, and Skip Heitzig. Um, and I will tell you that story in a, in a minute. Hold your applause. Uh, <laughs> but it's absolutely true. It's, it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, let me first of all explain the title is Atheism Dead. Some of you know there was an iconic Time Magazine article in 1966 called, it, it said, Is God Dead? Right? And th there's been this, you know, thinking uh, in the in intellectual circles since the uh, 19th century, obviously Darwin, 1859, Origin of the Species, that we don't need God. God is on the way out. Science is coming to replace God, and science is explaining all the stuff that we used to need religion, you know, to believe. We don't need that anymore. That's like the thesis in these intellectual circles. But it kind of came into America's living rooms in 1966 when Time Magazine had the temerity to put that question in America's living rooms. Is God dead? Kind of like, yeah, we, we, we know probably there's no God because science has disproved him. And that idea, we, we, most of us here have grown up in a world where in most circles and culturally elite circles, they kind of assume that the God question's been answered. We know that science answers all the questions or will answer all the questions that, that need being answered. And even those of us who are people of faith, I argue that we've internalized that a little bit. Our faith sometimes is a little less bold because we kind of think, well, there's a little truth to that maybe. Like there are these questions that these atheist scientists have that I can't answer or something like that. And, I, and I'm, I'm really here to tell you that that is so not true that it's astonishing. The evidence for God is astonishing. But the irony, what makes it funny to me, is that they always acted like it's science that's pushing God out of the picture. We can explain more and more about everything with science, whatever. Well, the bottom line is, when they really figured out, like, we've answered the question in 1966, and the cultural narrative got stuck in, you know, God's probably dead, it was around that time, ironically, that the evidence from science began to pile up and start pointing to the existence of God. And it piled up quietly, you know, kind of like you, you go to bed and you fall asleep and it snows all night. It's quiet. It's quiet. And you wake up in the morning and there's like you can't open the door because like there's 10 feet of snow. Like when did this happen? It was all so quiet. Well, the evidence for God from science has piled up so dramatically that I'm here to tell you it's, it's absolutely no contest. Science points to the existence of God utterly dramatically in a way that it is as open and shut as any open and shut question ever could be. And we're talking about science. We're not talking about Christian's point of view of science. We're talking about science. And I'll explain that uh, in a minute. Um, I, uh, I want to be clear that that narrative that said, is God dead? The question you have to ask now is, is not is God dead, but is atheism dead? And the real answer has to be absolutely. I mean, without any doubt, intellectually, atheism as a concept is deader than dead. But, of course, you'll meet many people who say, well, I'm an atheist. Well, there are flat earthers. I, I met one. 
Like, it doesn't matter. Like, flat earthism is dead. Just because you didn't get that memo doesn't really change the fact. And just because there are people that... I, I really think, look, if you want to hate God, you want to be an agnostic, whatever, it's a free country. But don't tell me that you can intellectually say that there is no God. Intellectually, you don't have a leg to stand on. And I dare people to look at the evidence. They're going to they're play head games because the evidence from science alone is astonishing. I mean, it really is ridiculous, and it's been piling up and up and up. And it was, I guess, less than two years ago, I kind of thought, somebody needs to write about this because a, a lot of us, we know a little bit, or we, but most even believers don't realize that the tide has shifted and the evidence from science for God is mind-blowing. It's totally mind-blowing. But the secular culture, as I said, got stuck in that narrative where they just said, like, well, we don't, we don't talk about that anymore. Well, uh, it's talking about you. You better check it out. So I wanted to write about that in the book. But the reason I wrote the book, I met a man in Albuquerque. Now, every time I say that, I say, it sounds like a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> I met a man in Albuquerque. Um, I don't know. His name is Dr. Stephen Collins. Some of you know who that is, right? He discovered biblical uh, Sodom. And I remember a few years ago, I don't know, four or five years ago, when Pastor Skip says, oh, you got to meet Dr. Collins. He discovered biblical Sodom. I said, what? Like, what are you talking about? What do you mean he discovered biblical Sodom? That's preposterous. You're kidding me. Like, a lot of people claim a lot of stuff. Discovered biblical Sodom. That's like the first couple of pages of the scripture. We don't even, we don't even try to find that stuff. Nobody's like trying to, you know, find, uh, well, that's not true. You know, there are people that claim they've discovered Noah's Ark. But the point is that I have a jaundiced view. I say, well, I, I hope so, but I want to see evidence, you know. So I looked into uh, Stephen Collins, and I'm sorry to say he's a fraud. Yeah, I had lunch with him today. Total fraud. He's blowing smoke. You need to know. No, just the opposite. I, I read the book, and I looked into it, and I thought, you know, I never know which is more amazing. When you discover something like that, like the level of amazement that we've discovered biblical Sodom from the first couple of pages of the scripture. This is like so ancient, so mythical seeming that we wouldn't even dream of discovering it. Yes, he discovered it. And obviously all the details are in my book and all the, all the details are in his book. But I said, the most astonishing thing to me after I'm amazed at this is how come nobody seems to know about this? How come I'm just hearing about this through my, my friend Skip? Like the whole world should know that archaeology is proving the Bible as history. And so at first I get blown away by the evidence, and then I get blown away by the fact that nobody's heard the evidence. And that's when I said, I, I need to write a book because this is like something that it just needs to get out there. Uh, I also met a man in Houston, which sounds more like a, like a Glenn Campbell song, I guess, right? And, um, and this is actually true. The Lord, you know, sovereignly directed me. I can't take credit like I've been working on this for decades and stuff. And it, it, I've always been interested in apologetics. And, um, you know, as Skip mentioned, I went to Yale. Like, I'm not proud of that. That is a very spiritually dark, secular, messed up, culturally Marxist place. Other than that, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> But places like that, places like Manhattan where I live, they've settled all this stuff. They don't even bother with this uh, stuff. And so anytime, I've always been interested in apologetics, but I'll never forget, it was exactly like talking to Skip and meeting Stephen Collins and hearing about uh, biblical Sodom. I was in Houston and a friend said, have you met 
uh, Dr. James Tord. You know who that is? And I said, no, who, who is he? And I met him, and he's probably the top nanoscientist on planet Earth. Now, nano, some of you know, nano means extremely tiny. So when I say he's a nanoscientist, I mean he's the, he's the tiniest human being. You can't even, you need a jeweler's loop to have a conversation. I'm kidding. I just want to make sure you're awake. Um, nanoscience means the study of the tiniest, tiniest. Like he's literally creating molecules in the lab. Like, don't ask me how. <laughs> just imagine the tweezers necessary to like be moving around. You can't even imagine how they do this. But, that, but he's probably the top nanoscientist in the world. So I met him. He's an on fire believer. And he has a conversation with, with me about something I, I had never really thought about in, in decades. And I'll bet most of you haven't either, unless you read the book or whatever. But Christians often argue about, you know, evolution or whatever. Like, we, we, we like to have those conversations, right? Like, you know, we, we know that there's no way that, you know, random mutations go from single cells to us. And, and it's like, no. But we like to talk about that. But what we never talk about, at least in my experience, is the previous question. Like, if you ask a scientist, when did life appear? They say, oh, it's very simple. We know that life appeared on planet Earth four billion years ago. We know that. Single-celled life. The simplest, simplest, simplest life. Any simpler, and it's not life. We know that happened four billion years ago. You go, really? Great. How did that happen? They don't know. They have no idea. But... If you ask them, they will probably say, oh, well, there was an experiment in 1952 in the University of Chicago. Now, some of you, you probably forgot this, but it was on your high school test. I'm telling you, this was on the test. It was an experiment in 1952 in the University of Chicago. Some grad students said, we think we know how life arose. And they created, you know, the prebiotic soup, right? They, they had some saline solution and some this and some that. They figured the kind of thing that would have existed on the planet four billion years ago, and they said, we're going to run some electricity through that because lightning striking it, you know, lightning, that's magic, right? So they run some electricity through it, and they eventually get some amino acids, okay? Now, if you're not tracking, it makes no difference because I'm barely tracking, but just go with it, right? They get some amino acids, and they go, whoa, we got amino acids? That's like one step away from proteins, which is one step away from, right? They're like, we're on the way. 1952, we figured it out. We've run some electricity through, this, through, through lifeless, you know, solution. And we got amino acids. So it's only a matter of time before science takes us to the next step where we can assemble proteins and carbohydrates and boom, boom, boom. And next thing you know, we're going to have salmon leaping and birds flying any second. Well, Jim, Jim Tour, James Tour, my friend, says to me, okay, like, he doesn't say, I know more about this than anybody in the world, but I know that he does, okay? And he says to me, I'm here to tell you, it has been seven decades since that experiment. And when they did that experiment in 1952, they were so confident as scientists that, like, it's just a matter of time. We've got amino acids. We're going to get this. We're going to get this. And he says they've had seven decades. Now, some of you know that seven decades is 70 years. Did you know that? Yeah, it's a very, 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 very long time in the world of research and science. I mean, this is like, you know, four years before Sputnik. The Korean War was being fought. Like, can you imagine what we've accomplished in science in 70 years? 
Well, James Tour says to me, on this issue, they have not moved the ball forward one millimeter. The more science has discovered, the more science has come to realize there is no way you get from an amino acid to a protein through random churning seawater or whatever they're saying. In other words, it's the kind of thing that if you're kind of naive and hopeful in 1952, you could say, well, maybe we'll, we'll figure it out. Well, you've had seven decades, and now not only don't you know how the next steps happened, you know that you don't know how they happened. You know with great detail how they never happened randomly and they can never happen randomly. You now know that. And it's only because as science advances, you now have the ability to see that the simplest life imaginable is so unbelievably complex that it takes your breath away. But we were too dumb in 1952 to really understand the complexity of a cell. We figured it's like a jelly donut, you know, like it's got an inside, it's got an outside. We'll figure it out. Well, now, you know, it's like, it's like the equivalent of finding a, a, a laptop uh, in the sand of the beach and saying like, isn't this amazing what the wind and the waves have created? Look, look at this, with the little keys and everything. Wow. I mean, the more you know about what you've discovered, the more you realize, oh, guess what? Yeah, the wind and the waves did not, didn't do this. The only thing that could create this is an amazing intelligence. This is really something. We now know, because of science, that the simplest cell, and I mean the simplest form of life imaginable, again, any simpler, it's not life, is unbelievably complex. In fact, it was only in 1953 they discovered DNA, and they discovered DNA is this incredibly complex code that even the simplest life has this outrageously complex computer code. And remember what the thesis was. The thesis was, well, there's no God, and all this stuff just happened randomly by chance. Some of you have heard, right, there's a, you know, somebody says, it, like, that's like saying that a, a tornado goes through a junkyard and creates a 747, you know, complete with, you know, tray tables and seatbelts, right? Like, even that doesn't do justice to what we're talking about. The more we know from science, the more we know that the simplest life imaginable is unimaginably complex. So it's been seven decades, and my friend Jim Tour's like, we're calling the bet, it's time, what do you got? He's basically saying we need to stop funding this kind of research because we now know that it's a fool's errand. And I thought to myself, this is more fascinating for believers than the idea of evolution. You know, in other words, there's one thing to say, okay, you got life, and we believe in this mechanism of natural selection and, you know, evolution, and, and, and you can say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. But forget about that. Just go to how did life get there to begin with? Like, let's say I, I'll give you evolution. You want to do evolution? Okay, all right. But let's just, let's talk about the first life that evolved. How did that life come into being? What's your theory? What's your thesis? You've been working on it for 70 years. Have I mentioned that? 70 years. Now, there are atheists like Richard Dawkins, the new atheist, that they literally say, like, we're working on it. There's a time when you know that, like, the seventh grader is blowing smoke, okay? Like, they didn't do the homework, and they need to shut up and sit down and stop wasting the class's time. That's where we are with this issue. And what could be more of a basic issue for any human being than how did life emerge? And 
the best evidence we now have, you'd have to say, well, maybe I can't prove it, but all the evidence points to the idea that an unbelievably unfathomable intelligence created it. A designer on a level that designs stuff infinitely beyond anything we could dream of designing. So when I met James Tour in Houston, I thought, you know, hey, have you written a book about this? Now, Stephen Collins, at least he wrote a book about this, okay? But, you know, James Tour, he's a very famous, important scientist. He doesn't have time to write books. You know, he's getting patents and writing papers and stuff like that. And I thought, this is crazy. This is like some of the best evidence for God imaginable. And no one knows about it. There's no book about it. I said, I got to put that in my book. And, and I thought, I got to put that in the book. I got to write about um, what Dr. Collins discovered. I said, these are unbelievable arguments. For, for one, for the existence of God. Now, you know, we're not talking about what kind of God. But the point is, it is just mind-blowing. And then the other, for the, for the historicity of Scripture. That this is not just some book, some ancient book. But that it's his history. And we can prove it. And, and I thought, the book needs to be titled, Is Atheism Dead? Because when you know this information and this information and all the other information that I didn't discover in Albuquerque or Houston, um, it's kind of funny, folks. The narrative has shifted. Science is, without any question, pointing to God. Now, the, the, the two arguments besides the one I just mentioned. The one I just mentioned is called abiogenesis, right? The idea of life coming uh, out of non-life, which again, in case you're scoring at home, is preposterous. Didn't happen, okay? But it's like you could talk, you could say the same thing about the Big Bang. I mean, we, we don't talk about that anymore, but scientists were really, really, really upset about the implication that the universe was once created, because they said, well, if it was once created, then people may ask us, how did that happen? And we don't know how that happened. We can't go back before it was created. Uh, that's before there was a physical universe. That's before. So the whole world of science, in a way, bought into this idea that there's no God, and now we've got we've to go with that. And if you go against that, you know, you're going you're gonna to lose grant money. You're going to lose friends. You know, we've all been through this more recently with other issues, right? And most people don't like that. So they're just going to go with the flow. So to me, there's a lot of funny stories in the book. One of them is that Einstein, the Einstein, who you think would be the most secure scientist imaginable, right? The most confident, secure human being. He's Einstein. Like when you say, you know, we use his name as a smart guy. What are you, some Einstein? Albert Einstein, in 1911 and 12, 13, he was, when he was discovering relativity, his equations pointed to the idea that the universe is expanding. And this troubled the young Albert Einstein because he was not the famous Albert Einstein. He said, this doesn't look so good. This smacks of the biblical account that the universe is expanding. And if you, if you run the clock backwards, you run the film backwards, it's expanding from a point so you're saying that uh, the universe was created? We can't have that. That's embarrassing. I, I won't have much of a career, thought the young Albert Einstein. I need to hide this evidence. So Albert Einstein, if you ever feel bad that you, you're insecure, you're worried about what other people think, I'm here to tell you Albert Einstein was afraid 
that he would be embarrassed in the scientific world if he revealed that his equations showed the, that the universe is expanding. So he created this thing called the cosmological constant, which is like a fudge factor. And he didn't have to deal with it. But then other scientists, this is always the problem with reality. It'll bite you. Other scientists discovered the th same thing in different ways. And I, and I tell this story in the book. Uh, Lemaitre, a Belgian um, a Catholic priest. Uh, 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 there's a, a, a Russian physicist. Uh, there's a, a, a Californian, Hubble. They all began to see evidence for the expanding universe. And, you know, eventually Einstein looked like an idiot. And he said that, I guess it was in 1931 in Pasadena, he finally said that not telling the truth when I discovered this was the biggest stupidity of my career. Now, let's be fair, his career was not exactly loaded with stupidities. He was a pretty sharp guy. Did I mention I'm talking about Albert Einstein? Did I mention that? Right. But he admitted that Instead of following the actual science and the math at the time, he went with the cultural narrative. The cultural narrative in the, in the scientific world was, we don't do God, we don't do religion. The universe always existed. Make sure your equations don't show any different. We've always lived in a fallen world where people are worried about what other people think. And sometimes, you know, you find that in religious communities, and you find it in scientific communities. Wherever there are people, there's sin and the temptation not to speak the truth. It's always existed. And so Einstein was embarrassed. And even after the evidence for the expanding universe and the Big Bang, whatever, many scientists continue to say, this is just wrong. We just don't like this. We want the universe to have existed forever because if it didn't exist forever, then everything had to happen within a certain amount of time, even evolution, everything just looks bad. It just messes us all up. So they dragged their feet on this. Fred Hoyle, who uh, in a BBC interview, I guess it was 1949, um, he was making fun of the Big Bang Theory and he actually coined the term Big Bang. Like he was trying to be dismissive, like that stupid exploding universe theory, so he called the Big Bang. Well, it kind of caught on. And so I say it's kind of like, it's like a, like a kick me sign taped to his back for the rest of his career that he was making fun of this theory and now it's known by what he, what he said. And of course it's been proved over and over and over and over and over and over and over. But we forget that no matter where you look in science, you see evidence for God. Now believers will always disagree on different things, but the narrative is always the same. And the most dramatic example of how science points to God is what's called the fine-tuned argument. How many of you would be say you're familiar with the fine-tuned argument? I'm curious. Okay, you guys can take a cigarette break. Give me five minutes. Um, I don't smoke. I just like to joke about it. Take it easy. And you people online smoking in your homes, we know you're there. That's why you're not here today, isn't it? You think we're dumb. They think we're dumb. We know you're smoking. It needs to stop. Okay. So, actually, it is wonderful to be in the house of God. Let me just say, what a, what a joy it is not to be doing church online. It, it really is. It's kind of nice. Kind of nice. Um, so, but the fine-tuned universe argument is the one that is kind of the most dramatic, that where the evidence has been piling up and up and up and up. And in a rare moment of honesty, Christopher Hitchens, who was a very nasty debater, 
He was obviously, uh, he really was like a dishonest, nasty debater. I actually encountered him on CNN in a, you know, 11-minute debate some years ago, and he would just like rip your head off. He was just really nasty, and he would never give, give uh, his opponent, you know, any grace or, or anything. But in a rare moment of candor, somebody stuck a, a, a camera in his face and said, hey, what's the best argument from the God side? You're always arguing for atheism. What's the best one you've heard? And he said, oh, without any question, the fine-tuned argument. And the fine-tuned argument is the argument that the more, remember, this is the theme, right? The more science learns, the more science bumps into things that look suspiciously designed. For example, we've only learned these things again in the last number of decades, most of these things. But if you're committed to the idea that there's no God, it looks really creepy, right? Like you notice that the size of the earth, you know, we used to watch Star Trek and we figure like there's life everywhere. And, but no, science now knows that if this planet were a tiny bit smaller, I'm not talking like a lot smaller, like a little bit smaller, 4% or whatever, there'd be no life. Now, have you heard that in school? That's science. They say that the magnetosphere of this, we didn't even know what a magnetosphere was a few decades ago, but we now know that we would not hold the atmosphere that we currently hold if the Earth was a little bit smaller. I mean, look at Mars, right? Have you ever tried to breathe on Mars? Raise your hand. Have you ever tried to breathe on Mars? A lot of us have, right? No, but I mean, we forget how, what we take for granted, the fact that we can breathe air, that we, I mean... Folks, science now knows that if the Earth were the tiniest bit smaller, there's no chance of life. But here's where it gets creepy. They know that if the Earth were the tiniest bit bigger, there'd be no atmosphere such as we have today. Science knows this. This is not some Christian theology. This is called science. They're telling us that the size of our planet just happens to be perfect for us. Isn't that nice? Isn't that great? We're, we're pretty lucky. So... But that's what they'd say, right? They'd say, well, it looks fine-tuned, but come on, it's just, it's just luck. Well, here's the problem. Everywhere science looks, they find evidence of fine-tuning exactly like that. It's like the Goldilocks. Not to this, not to this, but just right. They find it over and over and over. The existence of the moon. Who would think that the moon is central to our survival? You'd think, well, it's nice, but I don't, I don't care. You know, it's not, it's not really affecting anything. Science is now knows for sure that if the moon weren't there, if it weren't the size that it is, and it's, it's huge, I mean, it's 2,000 miles across, um, well, if you take a shortcut, it's like you could do it in 1800, but no, it's, it's 2,000 miles across, and Earth is 8,000 miles across. So the moon is really huge compared to other, if you look at the moons around our solar system, our moon is really very, very big. Science now knows that if our moon were not there, and it weren't the size it is, and it, it stabilizes the rotation of Earth such that if it were not there, there is not a chance there'd be life on Earth. It, it would be a level of fluctuating seasons and lunacy, and, but science now knows this. They didn't know this when I was a kid. This is like new evidence. Science now knows that if Jupiter weren't there, now I know, you know, you, you can see things like Jupiter here in Albuquerque. Don't brag, okay? I live in New York, and we, don't, we can't really see much. Um, I saw a cloud once, but I think that, I think that was a neighbor smoking. Uh, 
there's another smoking joke. It'll stop, Pastor. It'll stop. I'm just doing this to draw in the smoking online audience to let you know that we're not judging you for smoking at home. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what they put in my coffee. I apologize. Um, <laughs> well, in all seriousness, some of you can look up in the night sky and you can say, yeah, that pinprick of light, I know that that's Jupiter, right? Now, Jupiter is 400 million miles away from Earth. The, the sun is 93 million miles away. Jupiter is 400 million miles away, but it's so big, relatively speaking, that it possesses tremendous gravity and it pulls asteroids and meteors toward itself. And science now knows that if Jupiter, that pinprick of light that you can only see in Albuquerque, if it weren't there, you kind of think, what difference would it make? Science now knows that if it weren't there, a thousand times as many asteroids and meteors would hit Earth. And Dr. Stephen Collins can tell you what happens when a tiny meteor hits Earth. It like, you, you, you just can't imagine. It's a very rare event. It is, it is so destructive. There would be no chance of life on Earth as we know it if Jupiter and Saturn were not in the night sky. But who here would dream that even our solar system is so fine-tuned that if that weren't there, we wouldn't be here? Now, I'm just giving you a tiny handful of examples of fine-tuning. Everywhere you look in science, you see examples of this, and it is freaky. Um, you could talk water. Whoever thought water was fascinating? I never did. Let me tell you, there's a chapter in my book on water. It, it, it's almost impossible to believe, but, but the thing that we all take for granted, water, is such a bizarre concoction of God that chemists will tell you that it really shouldn't do half of the things that it does. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an oddity. Uh, the, 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 the freezing point, the boiling point, like it, it, it is a bizarre thing. And the more you look into it, the more you realize that it does an infinity of things that we never even think about, and that if it didn't have the properties that it has, we wouldn't have, the, there's, there would be no life on Earth, period, times 100. It's just not a chance. Um, water has just enough viscosity, it's just thick enough that it erodes rock fairly easily. And if it didn't do that, I mean, again, who would think that, like, hey, erosion, awesome, right? As I was looking into this, I thought to myself, this is crazy. The, the, the fact that water erodes rock means that it carries the minerals and, and, and metals with it. It erodes it and then Obviously, it dissolves, and wherever the water goes, it's carrying minerals and metals to feed plants wherever it goes. And then animals eat the plants, and animals get those minerals and metals. And you think, well, that's kind of nice. It almost seems like it was intended, like somebody designed it, but we know there's no God. That's just, it's just random. It just so happens that it has exactly the right viscosity to do this. And on and on and on and on it goes. Trust me, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface. There are hundreds of things like this that science now knows if they were just a little bit this way or a little bit this way, 
no life. And, and Christopher Hitchens, in this rare moment of candor, actually said, yeah, that's the one that would take some working out. When I wrote the piece on it, just on this, in the Wall Street Journal years ago, and that it was the most, like, read, shared article in the history of the Wall Street Journal, right? Why? Because you live in a world that says science is pointing away from God. So when somebody writes an article and says, no, just the opposite, people are stunned. They're like, what? I want to know more about this. But when I wrote that article, scientists came out of the woodwork. I shouldn't say scientists. Atheists came out of the woodwork to say how ridiculous this was and how this has been debunked and this is ridiculous. Well, there's one thing they missed. Christopher Hitchens, who's like, you know, smarter than all those other atheists, said, on the contrary, this is the argument that gives us trouble. So everywhere you look in science today, the evidence points to God. And again, I believe me, I'm scratching the surface. But I do find it sort of funny that if you really hate the idea of where the evidence leads, where the science leads, you'll come up with some theory. So what have some atheists come, come up with, right, is they call it the multiverse theory. Have you heard that one? It's hilarious. It's like, it's like believing in Santa Claus is way more logical. I'm not saying there's no Santa Claus. I'm just saying. But the multiverse theory is that, okay, in this universe, everything seems to line up really, 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 really perfectly. Yeah. But, but here's, uh, here's the solution to that problem. Um, there's an infinity of universes, and we just happen to live in the one where everything's perfect. Like, that's really dumb. Like, because here's the issue there's literally zero evidence for other universes. So this is called grasping at straws. This is called somebody who so hates the implications of the science that they come up with a kooky theory, which is the very thing they accuse people who believe in the Bible of doing, right? Like you can't handle the facts, so you have this crutch called religion, you invent this sky god and whatever, you know. Well, again, there's irony here, isn't there? Well, so the first part of the book is all about science. second part of the book is about biblical archaeology. And, and honestly, the discovery of biblical Sodom uh, in some ways is the most dramatic. But there's so many other things. The title of the, the middle part of the book is The Stones Will Cry Out. Because you realize that the more we dig, the more we discover, the more we find out that, guess what? The Bible is history. Everywhere you look, I mean, there are things in the book I won't even talk about right now, but, but they are... It is astonishing how archaeology is proving the Bible as history. And then, to say it again, what's further astonishing to me is that nobody knows about it. We still live in a world where people act like, well, we all know that there's no evidence for God. Folks, the evidence for God is mind-blowing. Now, the scientists, I'm sorry, the atheists who... Uh, have become popular in the last decades, the so-called new atheists, I was really amazed at their intellectual shallowness and dishonesty. And I, and I have to say, I was really amazed. I expected better. But their arguments are sloppy. They are, you know, it's, it's like talking to somebody who's really smart in one area, but don't get him on another side. Don't talk to him about baseball, because he, he, you know, he doesn't know anything about baseball. That's what happened with Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins. They are really... Um, being very intellectually dishonest. And so I call them out on some of this. But the atheists that you respect, people like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus, you know, these are people that they really believed were living in a world without God, but they were smart enough to understand that that's a bummer. That a world without God, a world without meaning, is 
very depressing if you think it through. They had the honesty to say that if there's no God and there's no meaning in the universe, what do we do? We're trying to work that out. How do you live as human beings in a world where your life has no meaning? And we have to look at the implications of atheism. And by the way, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, both of them looked so hard at atheism, so honestly, that at the end of their lives, both of them came to faith in the God of the Bible, which is totally unknown. And when I discovered that, I know. And when I discovered that, I thought, once again, I don't know what's more amazing, the fact that that happened or the fact that no one knows it. And I didn't know about it. And I, 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 just, I still can hardly believe that the world doesn't know this, that the two of the most famous atheists of the 20th century came to faith. But nobody seems to know about it. It's like we've moved on. Well, I think at the end of the day, the reason the title is Is Atheism Dead also has to do with the fact that I think we need to take the argument to people who say there's no God, and we need to say to them, listen, not only is, is your argument like not just untrue but preposterous on many levels, but it's worse than that. It's so impossibly bleak that if you dare to look at it honestly, it's unbearable. And you need to push them and say, if there's no God and we evolved out of the primordial soup by accident and our lives have no meaning, then literally there's no meaning in the universe and there's no good or evil. And you have zero basis on which to say racism is wrong because you're telling me, first of all, you believe in an evolutionary process which could account for all kinds of inequality. You don't believe, the only place you get Racism is wrong is called the Bible, where God says, I died for everyone, I'm no respecter of persons, and everyone is sacred in my sight. That's where you get the idea that racism is wrong. But if you're an atheist, where do you even get the idea of talking about such a thing? You, you, you have no intellectual basis to say anything, and, and you're playing head games by pretending like, oh yeah, I'm against racism. I'd be like, that's great, so am I. Tell me why. They don't have an intellectual leg to stand on because they believe there's no meaning in the universe. They don't believe you're sacred. They don't believe life is sacred. But, but the reason many of them are living with this kind of like, you know, two views simultaneously that make no sense, that are self-contradictory, is because no human being honestly can face a world without God. Even if you want a world without God, even if you're crazy enough to think that it's true, it's unbearable. And here's why it's unbearable. Because, in fact, you're created by a God who loves you, who died for you, who created you with a longing for meaning and love and transcendence and beauty. You can't escape that. And so even if you say you don't believe in it, every part of you longs for those things. So what I find funniest of all is actually that if an atheist is arguing with passion about why he's right and you're wrong, you, you want to say to him, excuse me, you believe we come from nowhere, we're going nowhere. When we die, it's like a mosquito died. It's meaningless. Why are you arguing so passionately? Why do you care? Why do you care what I think? Why do you care what you think? It makes no sense. In fact, their passion to argue for their point of view is itself an argument for the existence of God. Think of the irony, folks. It's inescapable. Everywhere you look, the evidence for God... I mean, if somebody tells you that your, your love for your kids, your, 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 your spouse, your parents, 
that's just chemicals. There's no transcendence. There's no real love. It's meaningless. No one can face that because it's a lie from the pit of hell. But, but that's effectively what atheism claims. But then they'll say stuff like, well, no, I create my own meaning or I believe we create our own meaning. That's sophistry, folks. That's the seventh grader telling you like, yeah, I got the checks in the mail or, you know, like some, it, it's a meaningless statement. If I say like, I create my own meaning, that's like saying like, I know you money and I'm, I'm gonna print some in the basement right now, I'll be right back. You, you, no, you can't do that. That's not real money. If you're talking about meaning, meaning means meaning. It means actual meaning. It's not something you create. You're playing head games. You're relying on the fact that I can't see through your, 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 your argument. But I think we have to say the bleakness of the atheistic worldview is unbearable. Um, my, at the end of the book, I write about, first of all, most scientists, the, the world of science comes to us from the Christian faith. That's the antithesis of the lie we bought that faith is at odds with science, right? Historically, you don't need to be Christian to know the history of science. It comes out of 16th and 17th century Christians and that whole worldview. That's a simple fact because they believe the universe is created by God. It's understandable and he's given us the gift to glorify him by examining it and, and discovering what an amazing God he is. And when you discover what an amazing God he is, who created the universe, who created the universe out of nothing. I mean, look at a mountain and then think that's nothing compared to the planet. And this planet is nothing compared to all the planets and all the stars and all the galaxies. It is so overwhelming. And then you think about an atomic structure that we can't see that God is causing the electrons to go around the nuclei this second in every atom in the universe and he invented this. He didn't just create it. He invented this. You, you get so astonished at who he is that you really do want to fall on your face. It's frightening. It's horrifying on some level how great God is. And then somebody says, oh, and by the way, that God loves you and knows your name and wants a relationship with you. You'd say, that's not possible. And they say, well, I know it sounds crazy, but you know, it actually, yes. He's so amazing that he wants relationship with you. He wants you to know him. And by the way, he created you in his image and he wants you to be with him forever and ever in eternity, which is outside of time and space. And he created it for you. And the reason you're uncomfortable in this world with aging and dying is because you weren't made for aging and dying. You weren't made to live in this world of decay and time. You were meant to live in eternity outside of time. So anybody tells you that eternity is a long, 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 long time, that's not even true. Eternity is outside of time. It's incomprehensible to us. And you will be eternally young and everything will be eternally new. And that's what he created you for. And that's what we long for. And it's the answer to every one of our questions and problems, and, and God wants us to know him. And in these last days, as you see the world going crazy, God gives us more and more information to point to himself, to say, uh, excuse me, fear not. 
I invented this world and I know you by name and I have a plan for you now and in eternity. It is, I mean, calling it good news seems kind of like an insulting joke, doesn't it? Like it's good news. It's so much better than good. It is goodness itself. It is, it is unimaginably glorious news. And when you study God and see who he is through science, you think, I haven't appreciated him. I, I thought he was my best bud. And guess what? He is my friend. But he invented the universe. And he created everything. And I haven't been in sufficient awe of him. And I haven't been in sufficient awe of the fact that he loves me. It, it, it's, it is unimaginably good news. It is, it, is, it is goodness itself. And I think that God gives us this information now to encourage us to be bolder in our faith. And if somebody says to you, like, I'm an atheist, it's like they say, I believe in mermaids or whatever. It's like, you know what? God bless you. I, I don't agree, but God bless you. And let's have coffee sometime. Uh, but I think we need to understand that your faith isn't merely compatible with rationality and science. Your, your faith is rationality and sanity itself. To walk in a world without God is insanity, and it will lead you to despair and death. And anybody with the guts to look atheism in the eye will eventually come out that other side, as Sartre and Camus did. But if you're flippant about it, I don't really think you should be taken very seriously because there are people who have wrestled with this and they're not happy about it. And I think science and many other things have given us the ammunition to go to them and say, listen, um, you don't have to despair. Science itself uh, is giving you information. Don't take my word for it. You know, you can look into it yourself. This is unimaginably good, good news, folks. And I want you to be uh, encouraged. Let me close with prayer. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that you in these last days have revealed yourself to us on a level that we couldn't have dreamt of even a few decades ago. And that you're making it less and less possible for people to dismiss you. And you're making it more and more easy for people who are hungry for truth to find it, to find you, to find Jesus and to have their lives transformed in the very way that you intended from before time and space existed. Father, we pray for an anointing on everyone listening to this, for an anointing of boldness and love and joy and peace and hope that would make those who don't have it say, I want that. Father, we ask for a supernatural dispensation of that on everyone hearing this, that we would be your army of hope and love and faith and joy and peace, and that you would bring glory to your name in this season, in this generation, through your servants. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Amen. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.